Welcome to the ninth in a series of review panels. That's a, uh, it's a collaborative effort between the National Academy of Design and ArtCritical.com. I am Susan Shatter, the president of the National Academy, and I welcome you. Glad you came out on this windy night. I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Department of Cultural Affairs, the Daedalus Foundation, and the Lehman Foundation. I'd also like to thank our sound engineer, Graeme White, and our uh, director of education, Rebecca Allen. Now I'd like to also tell you that there are two more review panels in 2006, and we have a little card with save the date on it, and they're on the back table if you want to pick those up for future reference. And there are also free admission slips on every seat for the museum. Good through June. I'd like now to uh, introduce... David Cohn, who is the publisher and editor of ArtCritical.com, the gallery director at the New York Studio School, and an art critic for the New York Sun. David will introduce the panelists this evening, and the critics will then dare to say what they won't print. <laughs> Whoa, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Susan. That's, uh, that might be a tall order when they know, of course, that um, uh, worse than printed, their, their words will be uh, carried um, electronically into oblivion and posterity uh, at artcritical.com, where previous uh, discussions can be, can be heard. Um, just in this December issue, uh, we have posted uh, the review panel number six, I believe, um, with uh, Irving Sandler and Daniel Kunitz. Um, and, um, yes, this might be a good moment to suggest that it's a good moment to turn <laughs> off your cell phones, uh, if you so desire. Barbara Pollack is the, uh, is the uh, fourth uh, 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 guest. It's <laughs> 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 the fourth guest um, on review panel number six, which can be um, heard online, www dot artcritical.com slash review panel. All right, okay. That's, we've got the joke now. Um, tonight's guests from the far left, uh, Mark Stevens, who is uh, art critic for New York Magazine and is co-author with his uh, wife, Annalyn Swan, of the uh, recently um, announced Pulitzer Prize winning biography, mm-hmm. Willem de Kooning, mm-hmm. uh, an American master. Uh, Eleanor Hartney is uh, a contributing editor at Art in America. Um, her book, Postmodern Heretics, The Catholic Imagination in Contemporary Art, was published in 2003, and we eagerly await uh, this in the next months from Hard Press Editions, a collection of her essays, Defending Complexity. And Robert Berlind, Bob, as many of us know him, uh, a painter represented by Tibor Denage Gallery, um, a recent exhibition of his work with a, a catalogue uh, written by uh, uh, Karen Wilkin, a former uh, review panellist, uh, uh, from his exhibition at the uh, Raoul Haig Museum at the University of Tulsa, which closes tomorrow, so you better 
get there quickly if you're not going to Miami, um, and uh, where, where, where Bob was distinguished Mayo visiting artist in the last uh, season. So ladies and gentlemen, this is your panel. And the exhibitions we're going to review this evening, as has been announced, um, are uh, Hans Hacker um, at uh, Paula Cooper, um, Nancy Spiro at Gallery Le Long, uh, Bob uh, Duncan Hanna at James and Graham, and um, uh, Barbara Takanega at uh, Mackenzie Fine Art. And just to run through the format for the evening for those of you who are uh, new to the series, it's of course lovely to see uh, old faces. Some of our best customers uh, are uh, come back for more, which is uh, always encouraging, but lovely to see new faces too. The, the format for the evening is that we will uh, have a critical discussion among ourselves of, of two shows um, and then bring in the audience for their comments and questions and then tackle the final two in the program. Future historians may debate whether there was an embarrassing lack or um, a surprising plenitude of uh, art that very soon after or within a year or so of the uh, September 11th attacks adopted um, September 11th iconography as, as central to its motif. Um, uh, one might think of the hacker as being in, in a way a uh, um, a companion piece to the show we saw uh, earlier this season, or was it last last year actually now, um, the, the Robert Gober exhibition at Matthew Marks, and uh, other artists uh, may come to mind using the, the, the Twin Towers or um, as, as a motif in their work, uh, Carolee Schneeman, for instance. Um, Eleanor, how did you respond to the show? Is it, was it print, did you feel it was a very personal show or did you feel it was a very um, um, strident sort of political statement? Well, I have to say that I was disappointed in the show. Um, I have uh, long been a, a fan of Hawkes. I, I think he really has pioneered um, a very interesting approach to political art, um, particularly a lot of the work that he did. Um, what, what he does best, I think, is to infiltrate a site and to, in some way, challenge the the audience or the you know the passers-by if it's a public site, um, in some sort of way. And you know, a, a lot of his work has taken place in museums and has actually been critical of the structure of the museum at the same time. I think one of the problems with this show was that it was in a gallery um, which was frequented by people who almost, I, I would imagine, overwhelmingly agreed with him. So there wasn't really sort of any, you know, kind of tension there. Um, and the work that I felt was worked best really were the, um, the, the public pieces, the, you know, where, again, he could play off of a site. So that sort of the idea of the, the stenciled twin tower, which could then be placed over... Um, you know, existing posters, and which I think came out not long after that. That that I believe that project actually happened not long after the fall of the twin towers. Um, it, you know, it really created a kind of memorial, and and I I thought that that was that was the most poignant um, thing in this show. I thought that the rest of it, the you know, the the torn flag. I mean, it was. I mean, he does have a tendency sometimes just to be, you know 
you know, just blindingly obvious. And, you know, I think the torn flag and the, you know, the, the heads wrapped in the flag and the manner of Abu Ghraib. I mean, they were just like so obvious, even though I completely share his sentiments. I, I thought, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't effective. It didn't, you know, didn't do anything new. And, mm. um, yeah, to me was, was not, I wasn't, I wasn't too happy with it. Yes. He seems to become somewhat, somewhat the master of uh, chopping up sacred national institutions. Uh, one thinks of his uh, Biennale in, in yeah, Venice, brilliant. where you, it took the floor of, uh, just after the fall of the wall, he took the floor of the German pavilion and sort of, um, uh, had it pulverized uh, for our delectation. And, and then, and then, yeah, the flag, it, it kind of strikes me as a bit of a cliche, this, this, this play with the flag, but uh, did, were you able to respond to it on, on a different level, Mark? I agree with Eleanor. I was completely underwhelmed by this particular show. The Hakka work that I like best is the, is the more difficult work that actually attacks the art world and museums. Mm -hmm. I think that is not so quite so easy to do as to uh, attack uh, the United States at this particular point. And, you know, I mean, the, the art world politically is a monoculture. And uh, everyone thinks pretty much the same. I mean, there are a few little political sprouts here and there that might think otherwise, but uh, the uniformity of opinion is, is oppressive. And uh, he is right in the middle of that opinion. He's sort of the Noam Chomsky of artists. And uh, the, as uh, David says, the American flag by now is uh, such a cliche in its use as, a, as an art symbol that, uh, that I found it, uh, you know, America's star has fallen. Um, uh, it's just not a terribly interesting uh, point of view, I think. I, I'm, I love to be shocked and surprised by political art, if, if I, indeed I am shocked and surprised. But if I, if I just say, oh yes, another uh, use of the American flag to uh, make a point about uh, uh, Iraq and 9-11, boy, you have to be really, really good to make that work, I think. And uh, I just, I, I didn't, it was all deduction, no inspiration to me. What was the balance of deduction and inspiration for you, Bob? Well, I don't have a lot to add to what's been said. I agree entirely. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, and I'm sure we all agree on the essential <laughs> politics of that. Um, I was perplexed by the installation because it, 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 on the one hand, it didn't actually succeed as an installation in the sense of something that galvanized that, that space and uh, took into consideration one's experience of walking in the room and walking around it. Nothing came out of that. It seemed like a collection of uh, objects, some of which referred to a project that had been undertaken out, outdoors mm -hmm. that seemed interesting, but it seemed uh, rather pallid inside. Mm -hmm. and, um, and as has been said, all of the symbolic uh, language in it was entirely cliched. So yeah. that was a disappointment. And I, I say that as one who also has greatly appreciated Haka's work. I remember that fabulous piece that... Uh, uh, that was shown in Soho where a kind of uh, uh, vivid deconstruction having to do with the ownership of the, uh, of the Manet yeah. asparagus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of the successive owners and the documentation of it from the first, what, publisher, I think rightist publisher, mm -hmm. who bought it in Paris to, till it moved into uh, Nazi hands mm -hmm. at some later point. And one did come away thinking in different terms about about Manet, which was, I thought, a sensational thing to accomplish yeah. uh, since one already had such strong feelings and, a, and an attachment of, Ma, uh, of Manet to uh, uh, some fundamental concepts of painting and what it meant to be a, 
a painter in the modern period. His attack on, on the Guggenheim way back in the yeah. 1970s really now is. seems remarkably mm. prescient, too. Absolutely. <laughs> <Doesn't> <laughs> yeah. uh, so. A pre-Krenz uh, 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 understanding of the... Yes. It's as if the Guggenheim then subsequently worked hard to live up to the indictment <laughs> that uh, uh, Hacker had, had initially... I mean, my favourite old Hacker, I actually can't stand the guy, and he seemed to epitomise me what I least like about uh, a kind of very heavy, self-important uh, political conceptualism. And I thought uh, that among the panel there was going to be some strident uh, defence of, of, of that and we could have some debate, but, but alas, we are absolutely <laughs> uniform in our, our, our degree, uh, you know, in, in our uh, opprobrium here. But the hack, the only hacker that I kind of really, that, that got a good laugh from me was that was, I mean, uh, that I thought was, you know, on the money was that uh, it was a marvellous uh, portrait of uh, Margaret Thatcher, mm. uh, which had um, cracked plates um, w- um, with, with, with portraits of um, uh, the Saatchi brothers who were her advertising agents uh, on a top shelf, and the cracked plates obviously having a dig at uh, uh, Julian Schnabel um, and, and uh, Charles Saatchi's penchant for that artist in his, in his collection. But, well we could try to spin out some kind of debate and argue, no, 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 you're wrong. I like, I hate him even more than you do. But um, I, I fear that, you know, we all have our favorite hackers from the past and uh, uh, somehow this, this hacker just didn't hack it. And we just, <laughs> I, I, I fear that we need to move on uh, swiftly. Um, Sorry? Hands off. Hands off. Uh, other half of the panel wish to come up with an excruciating pun, or shall we... Uh, <laughs> All shall, the taste is on this side. Shall, shall we, shall we um, spearhead onwards with Spiro? Well, I think perhaps a, a very radically different... Sen- well, a, a comparable spareness between Hacker and Spiro, but to my mind, a, a, a poles apart in the sort of degree of uh, effect and uh, theatrical effectiveness. Um, well, that's it repetition, but um, a, a sense of really, for me, using and, and feeling her way through the space. Did, did uh, Bob, would you agree with that? I mean, did uh, yeah, you... I, I found it uh, tremendously moving. Uh, and uh, one thing that struck me when Roberta Smith wrote about it, she talked about it ending in darkness, which means she went into the gallery and moved counterclockwise, which didn't, wasn't the way I did it. Mm. And I found if, if you moved clockwise, you began with uh, some rather inchoate dark passage that wrapped around, you saw it on the, on the left there in the picture, uh, th- that if you moved that way and around uh, in a clockwise fashion, there was a kind of reprise of her career, at least certain elements in her career. And I took that initial passage as a kind of reference to work that she was doing in the 50s, the very dark, scuzzy uh, images of lovers uh, that were almost entirely black. And it, it seemed to come back to that and then reach moments of clarity, which were like a, a sort of surge of emotion at certain points, particularly the use of the uh, cutouts, maybe, maybe the silhouettes um, possibly picking up on uh, things that Kentridge has done or, or that, um, what, what's your name? Uh, uh, Kara Walker? Walker has done. Um, n- not that I think Nancy has ever, ever lacked for inspiration. And as you moved around, we moved in, into some quite colorful images. Coming toward the end, it was a kind of a lightning. And so if one were to see it as a kind of temporal installation moving around, 
uh, I think it had a certain poignancy uh, of that sort. And everyone uh, saw it in musical terms, although it was consistently in a, right. a, a somber, it gave a somber impression, it wasn't always in the minor key. Right, right. Uh, it also had a kind of wonderfully layered uh, sense of meaning. I mean, the, the cri du coeur, of course, one understood to be uh, a year of mourning for her late husband, Leon Golub, uh, whom all of us have been mourning. Um, but it was also an image of women in mourning at a time when there are wars, as, as Leon and Nancy both have always been very conscious of, uh, not only the few that we read about in the papers that we uh, acknowledge our participation in, but all over the world. There are dozens at any given time. Uh, and, of course, the women are the chief uh, group that suffers from that. Yeah, and yes. one couldn't help but read it as resonating with uh, all of the horrors that are going on today. Yes. So I, I found that concatenation to be in itself uh, very moving. Yes. I had only um, one, 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 one problem with the installation. Okay. I wish the lights had been a little bit lower because oh. the upper part of the wall was very bright. Uh, and it, it could have been a, a more somber affair. Galleries do not like to turn the lights down, I know. But well, I, I think, I think I'm sure the artist would have... Um, one hopes... Oops, is that, uh, speaking that of... That <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, okay. Let there be light. It's not just downtown trendy galleries, it's uh, august uptown institutions yeah. that also want us to... Um, this is not a funereal panel. <laughs> this is not, yeah. Well, I uh, don't think... Well, up to you, whatever. I, I, I do everything except the lighting. Okay, so... Um, uh, uh, Eleanor, would, would you would you concur? Did you feel yeah. it had deep depths of meaning, which 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 were uh, uh, clear or at least resonant with you? Yeah, I, I mean, hopefully we're not going to all agree this entire panel, but I I um, I very much agree with what Bob was saying, and I guess to to just the other other thing I could add is that it was interesting to look at this show in you know sort of juxtaposition to the Haka show because in a sense. I mean, this is a very personal show, but one also did read it uh, politically, as her work has always been a mix of the personal and the political. And you, you, you realize that one of the things that really was missing so much from Haka's work was that, that sort of sense of emotional depth, that, that emotional connection. Um, you know, that, and I, I think that his work has never... You know, it, it's always been very cerebral, and that can be fine, um, especially when he's sort of deconstructing systems of the art world or whatever. But it, it may also have something to do with how do we deal with this current situation that we're in. Um, it, it, it seems to me that, it, I mean, we're, we're, this is one of the darker periods in American history, and yet we have artists, by and large, don't seem to be able... To, to deal with it. I mean, there, there's been very little satisfying art that really seems to speak to what, what it is. And, 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 and a, in a sense, I think this, this work, even though it was in a certain way very personal, um, you know, it, it did give you that, that sense of the, of the mourning, you know, not just the, the mourning of the women, but in a way the mourning for our country, which is kind of what Haka was trying to get it with the torn flag, but it, it, in an unsuccessful way. And so it, it kind of raises for me the question also about, you know, what kind of language we can use to talk about these kinds of, of situations and whether artists seem to have the, the vocabulary available to them now to deal with the complexities of, of what we're facing. Yeah. I mean, sure, Mark. Sure, please. 
Uh, what interests me about it, I saw her show after the, the Hawker show, and it seemed to me that uh, if he's all mind, she's all heart. And if I were ever to make any criticism of her, it would be that sometimes you would want more distance, perhaps, or, or the complexity that comes from a, a mind challenging a heart uh, at the same, you know, that what happens when that happens. Um, but I, uh, what I, I, I immediately had a visceral and physical reaction before anything else when I went into the room, and I thought that was a very good sign. Uh, I like to begin thinking, really, uh, through some kind of visceral, physical sensation that I can't quite explain, and then I try to explain it as I as I walk about. And I, I thought, for example, the way she, she put the freeze uh, near the ground uh, was fascinating to me because that created uh, physical discomfort in the viewer. Not a lot, but a little. You had to mm -hmm. sort of crouch down yes. and do like this. So immediately you were put on edge uh, in a way, which I think helped enhance the experience of the work, of what she was uh, getting at. I also, I, uh, while I, I know that it has a, a bearing, political bearings and all that sort of thing, I think that political art, when it works, really does transcend the political issue of the moment. Mm. I mean, we don't think any more about the complex French-Spanish politics when we look at Goya, Goya's May the Third. We think of some larger uh, situation about, about human nature. And uh, I think in this piece, uh, the, you first think about suffering and the physicality of suffering, about death, after all, is a, is a loss of the physical that is felt intensely physically. Uh, and it, she seems to know all that and to get that into the, into the freeze itself. I, I was fascinated by what you said, and it hadn't occurred to me that you could go either way. Mm. And I wondered, whether, I wondered whether she intended that. I went uh, like uh, Roberta did. I went. Uh, I went. Well, me too, because I went in the way in which the women were facing. Uh, so that seemed to me the. But I thought maybe she was making some point about, a, a, as Roberta said, about a, a darkening, and at the very end, you could hardly reach the uh, the figures. Um, but I see. You know, you yeah. could go the other that, way. That changes uh, the whole and thing. And I'm now actually thinking of it rather differently because of, of your observation. Um, well, I think also the fact that it's not the Bayeux tapestry. We don't really actually get uh, any narrative. It's just a, a one-off icon, even though it's filling a, a whole space. I don't think it really makes much difference. Um, I don't think you need go anywhere. You could just stand in the middle and get it. I, I, I felt that it was... I mean, that didn't discourage me from taking it in as, as a, a cycle, because it, it's, a, it's a cycle in the literal, physical sense of, um, of going around the wall. But... Um, it 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 was um, it worked in an abstract rather than a figurative way in in terms of um, movements in color and tone and light and texture. Well, and it, it makes you think about you know I, um, there's been some discussion about minimalism as the language of, of memorials, you know, and in a sense, I mean, it was it was very minimal, you know, in a, in a mm -hmm. certain way. And you, you think about yeah, yes. you know, Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, which is also about that moving through time as it you know mm -hmm. kind of engulfs you. And so that that I don't know. It, it made me think about that also. That that this that somehow minimalism, which certainly never was originally intended for that purpose, mm -hmm. does seem to be a, a, a very effective way of dealing mm -hmm. with those kinds of feelings. Yes, I felt that the the, the being on the floor, as it were, and, and to me actually, it therefore, didn't. I, I if if the gallery had been had a subdued lighting, I think it would have then made it uh, somewhat. Uh, uh, melodramatic and uh, cinematic. I actually preferred the fact that the lights were on full blast. You weren't allowed to forget that you were in this cold, 
raw, neutral, industrial kind of space. And then, in a bizarre way, having that, having the paint at the bottom of the wall, it felt like it was painting decomposing. It was, it was something. It was like a kind of scum that had fallen down, residue, uh, and and the fact that it was women mourning at something that's low down, marginal, uh, then actually has more of a point, has more of a Well, and resonance. the arms are going up as, as yes. but the images are, are subsiding into the ground. Yes. Again, a, a nice uh, analogy for death, you know, for yes. resurrection or not. Yes. Of course, these figures are mourning, so they're, they're actually here with us. I mean, it is of death, but, but the, um, the ululating women are the uh, survivors, as it were. Mm. Uh, yes, yes. Well, um, positive consensus can be as dull for a panel as, as, as negative. Okay, but, we'll try. We'll but, try to do um, better. <laughs> I believe, I, believe I, I think it's a good moment, and I, I would love to hear from a passionate defender of Hacker or a virulent detractor of Spiro. Um, but uh, don't allow that to... Don't, don't hold back if you have something interesting to say which nonetheless concurs with where we are. The lady at the front here. And do wait, if you wouldn't mind, for the mic, because as they say, we, we record these and it would be lovely to all hear it. Uh, actually, I have something in defense of Hakka. Um, not of the entire installation, but of the one photograph with the person sitting with the hood in front of him. Mm. And it's, that is called stargazing. And I remember over a year ago, um, Arthur Dunto wrote something um, almost wishing for the Abergrave images to end up at the next biennial and I, mm. in a most tactless way without even thinking whether those people would want to see their images in a museum. And when I saw that image a while ago, I thought it was a very smart and poetic and also um, has a tact for the dignity of people. Um, it was a use of the, the Abu Ghraib imagery, but mm-hmm. with tact mm. and poetry. That's interesting, because you're looking at it from the point of view of the, the Abu Ghraib person, whereas perhaps I and others would have been looking at it as another way to denigrate the flag. So, but of course, each, each is an equally valid interpretation. Yeah, just the of, title, but was great. Stargazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it, uh, yeah. Okay, yes, Irving Sand. <coughs> found the Egyptian image a little bit more ambiguous than just mourning. It's also an image of celebration, supplication, and uh, it had those other kinds of connotations that added a certain dimension. I wonder what you think about that kind of interpretation. Well, well, I think if you if you take Bob's reverse, you know, then it does it does turn out to be something quite different, and maybe even I don't know if it, I don't know if I would read resistance into it, but um, yeah, it, it yeah if you if you reverse it and you and you go from dark to light, um, then that gesture maybe is a more empowering one. Well, I, I, I would I would also say that given the repetition moving around there and the pacing of that, one has very much the sense of something of a ceremonial nature on the one hand, also the ancientness of that circumstance in which we find ourselves. Well, and as Irving so, may be suggesting, I mean, the Egyptians, to a certain degree, look forward to death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been yeah. no culture that was more death-haunted, obsessed, and enlivened by, by the very idea of death. Yes, and Egypt, of course, the, the great empire of its day, and now uh, a civilization from the Middle East adds two layers of potential political... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
meaning to the image. But what, what also struck me, though, is that Nancy Spiro is an artist I always think of as being uh, really protean when it comes to image generation. If you think of those incredible uh, works that she made in protest to the Vietnam War in the, the 1960s, just the uh, ceaseless kind of visual invention uh, of, of iconography, of imagery. So it's, it therefore gave a, a more haunted feel to this installation where you basically just had one repeated uh, uh, stencil. Of course, with countless other artists, that degree of restraint or minimalism is just uh, par for the course. But it seems to me for an artist of, of, of Spiro's um, uh, creativity, it's almost in itself a poignant statement. An act of renunciation. Yes. yes. Um, at the drawing center. Nancy's installation at the drawing center. It's quite, it's just magnificent. An earlier work. Mm. Ah. And more overtly political. Yeah. Which piece? Well, I didn't. I heard. Vietnam War drawings, yeah. that show. At, at, yeah. Uh, was it not the same show, is it not the same work that was shown at Le Long uh, two years ago? I don't think so. The so. sort of atomic mushrooms. And... Covered the wall. Yeah, this is, yeah. Some of the same imagery. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, we should have seen it and considered it. So thank you for that. Um, more on Hacker, more on uh, uh, Lady in the Front. Um, I'm going to get a lot of flack from this. Oh, good. This, but, good. Uh, could you, ha you talk about emotional depth. Uh, couldn't you have emotional depth as opposed to cerebral death without the human figure? Um... What, wait, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand that, that what gives, what you're saying is that what gives Nancy Sparrow's work the emotional depth is that there's a, a figure and that the, we identify, the human figure. and that we identify with the figure. Um, well, I think you can have emotional depth without that, although that is an interesting point that, you know, if, you know, there is an identification perhaps, even if it's an abstract or um, non-referential form. Um, I'm just thinking... You know, the, the, the piece of Hawkins that to me had the most emotional depth was the one, um, the, the one at, at Documenta where he, you know, shot up the German pavilion and broke the, um, the marble floor. And, and what was really moving about it was when you walked on that floor and it was, you know, this, this, it, it really was your, your, the, your own body in a way. I mean, it wasn't, so it wasn't that there was actually you know, a representation of a body, but it was your body in that space, you know, and, and the sound of that sort of cracking marble. I mean, just, it gave, it was, it was very, very powerful. So, no, it's an interesting point that, that maybe we, you know, as humans, we require that emotional connection, you know, that, that where we need that. And even in landscapes, I think sometimes when there's emotional depth that it, you know, there is an identification somehow with it, with the figure, the absent figure, the, your one's presence there. So, um, but on the other hand, you could say that, you know, Hake is, you know, in some ways making reference as well. I mean, certainly the, the wrapped figures with, you know, the, the, the hood, um, you know, those were figurative. Um, and maybe even, you know, the twin towers as kind of, you know, entities as, you know, li living entities that died, you know, which, because I did feel that that was the most successful thing there were, were those um, yes. outlines. And because they were, it was like these ghost images that, you know, appeared downtown after, you know, the thing. And, and in a way, it was like they were, they had died, you know, they, they were, you know, they were kind of grave 
tombstone-like, but also, you know, like figures who had died. In a but way. also, of course, what the uh, cutouts do is they uh, press gang uh, uh, corporate banality to animate the mm. lost sort of negative space of the Twin Towers, um, which which could be a very profound statement, or it could just be yet another smarmy denigration of um, uh, things <laughs> that other Americans might, well, or people might might uh, might feel that you know where angels fear to tread, so mm. to speak. Well, Hannah is an artist who really amuses and intrigues and beguiles me. Uh, he, in many ways seems to belong to a trajectory within art that has produced an awful amount of stuff that I really don't like and care for and want to know about. In a, it seems that he's not a distant cousin of, say, uh, John Curran or David Sally in sort of playing games with the language of art and um, teasing a distinction between good art and bad art. But... For me, he does what I really want art to do, and I find myself therefore forgiving his relationship to that um, body of work because what I want an artist to do is give me, a, well, one of the things I would want an artist to do or one of the things that I found impresses me when an artist does it is when they give me um, a compelling sense of their own world, their own, with their own language, and with a, a language that is aware of itself, they create pictures that, that contain their own kind of emotional logic and, and, and that work on their own terms. Um, what terms do you think he works on, uh, Mark? Did you, did you come away with that? Uh... I, I have mixed feelings about this show. I, uh, I just was upstairs before the panel began, and I was staring at, at the, uh, the sergeant they have upstairs, and I was just thinking, you know, this is really... And sergeant is not my favorite artist either. I'm sort of more a whistler person. But, uh, but I was thinking, this is really what painting... I mean, he, he's really involved with paint uh, in a way that just fascinates me. Um, and I don't really respect myself in the morning entirely, but uh, <laughs> at least he's, uh, he's, uh, he's very involved with paint. And with Hannah, I felt, first of all, uh, that, that he knows about paint uh, to some degree, but he, he won't really work it uh, for reasons that I don't really understand that are probably intellectual and art-worldy. Um, mm. That was uh, number one. So I felt, I felt, I wish that he would, for example, with somebody like Balthus, um, whatever you think of his mind and his sensibility and whatever he's about, the surfaces are absolutely gorgeous, and there's things about the forms that can carry you and do things with you. And, and for me, there wasn't quite enough of that in, in, in the Hannah. Also, I thought uh, the ones that I liked best were not the sort of 30s illustration, 20s, 30s illustration-looking, slightly Darger-esque uh, ones, but the, the more Hopper-like ones, uh, the, the movie theater with the third man. It, those, the pictures of his that seem to have a secret uh, in mm -hmm. them, locked in somewhere that is mysterious and that, as you say, create a feeling that he does have an imaginary world in there that he's, uh, he's, mm -hmm. uh, he's dealing with. So I, I, I agree with you that I think he's a, he's a genuine artist, that he has a, a world and a sensibility. Whether he's really possessed it, that mm -hmm. sensibility and that world in a way that uh, is finally um, very exciting to me, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know his work well enough, I don't think, to finally come to 
Yeah, Bob. Do you feel that the, the, the lack of there's a lack of painterly investment that bugs you, or do you feel that well, he's got got the pitch right as far I as I have that? to say, I think they fare better in reproduction. Well, um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean that snidely. I mean, uh, probably many paintings do, but uh, the encounter with the actual surface of the painting and its actual physical size and mm-hmm. uh, uh, physical presence, uh, it, it seems to me, is deliberately uh, one of a kind of uh, what low energy, mm-hmm. um, a, a kind of cool approach. I see them, the paintings, as re- being essentially literary. I mean, they're. There's nostalgia for, I suppose, and this is the world that you're talking about, Mark, uh, an imagined youth, uh, a time well past, I I guess it's Edwardian, I don't know, as though though being seen and mulled over perhaps in the 20s or 30s or early 40s. Uh, It's in other countries, the British Isles or France, variously, and has the feeling of that, that kind of very distant period uh, so there's a realm of fantasy there, certainly, and a, and a world. Uh, there's an occasional nod to Balthus, I think, but I don't feel that obsessional thematic focus. And I don't feel in the paintings, the, uh, the way that works in Balthus is there's a kind of intensive classicism. Those paintings are so worked because there's something that has to be got. He's so needy. <laughs> He's so needy, exactly. And there's an appetite in those paintings, uh, not only for the nymphettes, but for the mm-hmm. painting itself. <laughs> and... Uh, and I don't find that degree of tension in Duncan Hammond's paintings. I, I, I think it wants to be there. On the other hand, maybe he means for it to be a kind of light touch. But in that case, uh, maybe we'd be in a realm something closer to Luke Toyman's, you know, of, of a wow. kind of abnegation of painterly flourish in order I to think, make I think a picture hit, of a picture. I, I think you're, you're hitting on it for me there. He's, I mentioned Karen and uh, uh, is who else I mentioned, uh, Sally, but... Toyman's actually would have been the better one, or somebody like Merlin James as well. For me, I'll bring, I'd certainly want to bring you in, Eleanor, but for me, um, actually, what, what the gentlemen are perceiving as limitations of the work are, for me, have, have the resonance of intentionality. I feel that this is a kind of... There's a, there's not a nostalgia for painting itself. It's, it's almost as if these, this is an artist who wants to create paintings that look like they've been found by accident in an attic or a, a thrift store that, 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 that sort of have a kind of um, these, these don't look like paintings that are trying hard to be in a, in a major museum for being paintings mm-hmm. they want to be in a major museum as every artist does but for the kind of s- slightly um, ironic, diffident um, sense of, of being about painting, There's, there are heavy quotes around At, at some remove though, I mean it seems to me that they're Paintings of illustrations, of mm. stories, mm. about some former situation. So there, I, I, I appreciate and I feel I could feel a certain affection for that kind of extraordinary diffidence. Uh, I think the painting should be more consistently uh, worked in order to address that. So that is implicit in the surface mm. itself. Yeah, Helen. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say that his work has always left me pretty cold, and um, you know the the. You know the the, the lack of, of any intensity of the surface, the sort of um, blandness of of the paint. I mean, I guess I've always read it as a kind of postmodern strategy. Without that, you know, these images might, in fact, be something you found in the attic or whatever. Um, you know, they they they, they reference they, they have this nostalgia, but they don't. To me, they don't. 
they don't have enough perversity to really kind of do the nostalgia thing in an interesting way. I mean, I, I really would like more perversity. And when they do try to be perverse with some of the nudes, it's just so obvious. But it, it seems to me that, I mean, I've always kind of read that, that bland surface as, it, it, in a way, that's a way of making it seem postmodern. You know, it's, it's a way that, you know, so you know you're not, he's not just an illustrator. You know, he's, he's aware of all the currents and, and, and contemporary art, and, and he's kind of fitting it into that place. But to me, I, I mean, as I say, you know, it, it's funny, as a critic, it's, it's, it's easier to write about things that you feel very strongly about, either because you love them or that you hate them. And for me, I, I've just, his work is always, I just feel very neutral about his work, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I think, though, that that, um, well, of course, it's a very hard or strange or perverse activity to want to make work that is neutral and that, that doesn't uh, demand to be loved or hated. And um, one would have to say that it would be perverse to find yourself really liking work that is neutral because it would... Um, how do you, how do you um, distinguish between um, a poetically intentional <laughs> neutral dullness and a kind of um, um, just... just a painting that misses it, but I find that he's 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 one of those artists who really tweaks that that sort of tipping point between meaning it to be quite there and not meaning it to be there, and that's what keeps me on edge and keeps me kind of excited in that perversely sort of low octane kind of way. I feel that we just had maybe I just maybe maybe I can indulge myself as the youngest member of the panel and uh, and say that for younger painters. There is this enormous sense of ennui, this sense of exhaustion that, that so much has been done and that certainly on the extremes so much has been done. Grow that, up. That, that the soggy centre has this, has this alluring appeal, that it's the, it's the uncolonised aesthetic territory. As it were. You know, I, I, think, I think what you're saying I understand, but I think what you would want, if, if, if he's after that kind of diffidence, which I'm sure he is, you want to feel that there's been a, a major sacrifice made there. In other words, that he could really paint... In the old way, if he if he if he wanted to, he just doesn't believe it. So he's 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 uh, carried out this intense, powerful sacrifice. But he hasn't persuaded me that that's well. The that's case. that's a very, uh, yeah. But that's a very again. Once once you state that, once you're there, then you're um, in a conceptually a very different place. I think that there is um, that there is enough going on. We've all talked about the surfaces being having this kind of. Uh, a glassy indifference in them, but I feel that there actually is quite a degree of investment well, in the, 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 the kind of poet, the color and the relationships. If you look at that painting of, uh, uh, it says the house of a retired Hitchcock uh, actress. It's uh, uh, it's one of the themes within his work. is is an obsession with. He's a kind of painterly stalker of the um, uh, starlet of yesteryear, Nova Pilbeam, who starred in a number of Hitchcock movies and this is her house so at one level it's just a kind of um, it's just a sort of illustration but then when you do get if you allow yourself to you, do, you can get very seduced by the uh, tonal and colour relationships that are what, happening in the image What about comparing him then with Chris Ware? Chris Ware you've seen him in the New York Sunday Times uh, magazine section but you know, he does Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest kid on earth, and these very neutral, bland, still muffled, visually muffled circumstances of people in a general state of depression. He's a fine artist <laughs> or, or an illustrator? Well, he's a comic 
comic artist. I don't know if, the, if we have the language for it yet, but uh -huh. somebody who does strips. Mm. Oh, I see. And they're very poignant. Uh, Peter Sheldahl called him, he's made some over-the-top uh, mm. appraisal of, of him in the world mm. of comic illustration. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, so in terms of the emotional quality of the work? Yeah, it, there's a kind of consistent tone that is very dead mm -hmm. uh, and, and so finely calibrated that you stay interested. Well, uh, and I'll, check, I'll check him out, maybe, he, uh, but I've never heard of him. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I don't oh, know. This is an important word. Of, of artistic <laughs> uh -huh. activity now. Yeah, there oh, okay. you go. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I mean, the difference is that that there's a narrative, you yes. know, and the, the a part of this, it's also not only is the surface dead, but there's this aborted narrative, de deliberately aborted mm -hmm. narrative mm -hmm. in this work. I mean, it, I think it just, I feel it just doesn't give you enough. It doesn't give me enough. I mean, I just feel like it's, it's so cool, you know, and 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 so you know, unwilling to, you know, make a, an emotional commitment that I just don't care. But is, is it so cool in terms of actual narrative? I think actually there's, um, uh, Bob talked about the, 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 um, the sense of um, uh, and, and, and the, the literary sense in the work. Surely, actually, within each individual work, often there is a poignancy, a sense of mood. And then what you also get within a a Hannah show of, of which this is typical, is you get um, the sense that these are perhaps loose pages of something like a Tintin book, where, or, a, or loose illustrations from a, uh, the, 30, uh, the 39 Steps or something. You, they could somehow be added up to a narrative. There is a sense of um, um, an obsession with the past and of um, obsessions with, with, with actresses and with girls. Who, who is the artist showing now who does reference Tintin? Uh, the, the, oh, is there uh, one? Yeah, yeah uh, who showed... Why do you say Tan Tan? He says Tintin. I'm sorry, Tintin. Tintin. No, Tan Tan. 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 But in any case, an artist who does... One did a number of portraits of guys who just happened to have their hair do what Tintin's hair does. And some very large paintings. Yeah. Copying the style, yeah. and Hergé is a fabulous artist. I love. I've always <laughs> loved his drawing. I suppose yeah. everybody does who who knows yeah. it. Um, and then there were there was a series of different sorts of work that made that reference. Does nobody nobody saw I that? I'm sorry, I, 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 that's I okay. But I mean, we, we have Frederick Tutin, who's who's written a whole novel right. of right. Tintin and right. Tantin in America. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I, I I I just want to stay with Hannah for a, a couple of moments longer. I, I, I'm surprised that no one else is really picking up a sense of the boy's own adventure. There's a, there's a sort of willful nerdishness through through this work that that um, gives it some some really sense of intrigue for me. I'm, I'm sorry to be alone in, in sensing that. Well, but, you said uh, you were the youngest. Yes, maybe it's for the puerile. This is, this is art. This is literally art for the puerile. And uh, here is a puer who can't even pronounce the name of Tintin and has never heard or Tanta who 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 proves the point. Well, let's move from the. Um, Let's move from the... Uh, I, I, would, I do want to say one yes, other thing. Please. It seems to me that in former shows of Duncan, he's, he's established that tone more successfully. Okay. So I'll just put that in. It may be time for a new tone. Great. Perhaps to fizz things up a little, uh, at the, our, last, our last show uh, this evening, uh, Barbara Takanega at uh, Mackenzie Fine Art. Eleanor, you, you had mentioned some degree of... Chagrin, or at least you're, you're having noted that in this time of uh, acute political uh, crisis, uh, 
there's very little art that seems to really address the political situation. Um, do, you, do you feel that equally it's kind of perverse that so many artists today are, are sort of revisiting a sense of the psychedelic? Um, remember the era, the era of Vietnam was also the era of acid. Um, what, what's going on with the zeitgeist and how does that impact how we might view Takanega? Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. It's it's interesting that yeah, all, the, all of this sort of psychedelic art. There's a show up in, in, in L.A. right now, you know, called um, Ecstasy. I mean, it, it the last Whitney Biennial actually was was full of a lot of this stuff too. And it is it, it is a kind of recuperation of a, a selective recuperation of the '60s that's going on. That's very interesting. Um, it, it's you know sort of. Not just that, but also there, there's been a, a well. It was evident in the Whitney Biennial also a, a certain, you know, nostalgic referencing back to the activism of those days, but one which seemed to have no consequences for the artist in terms of the present. So it's it's like you know this sort of notion that of now. I, I would say in terms of, of uh, Tankanika's work, I actually I like the show quite a bit. Um, but it, yes, it did strike me that there's there is something about this this nostalgia. It's a, you know a certain kind of escapism and a, and a certain fascination with that era. Um, but having taken out of it perhaps what would be more relevant to our time. So I I, I have that did strike me also. Also, I would say in the Greater New York show, this was particularly yes. evident. Uh, I went there with a group of students, graduate students and undergraduates from, from Burgess, and uh, we came out and talked about it. And I had asked them to see if there was some sign of a zeitgeist or something of that sort, or perhaps a few zeitgeists uh, operating in the situation. And they had a, a, a rather unanimous reading about the show as a whole. They found it uh, anxiety fueled. And the strategies for dealing with that anxiety uh, among them were uh, obsessional work, a, a retreat into a private space, uh, and others were a kind of in-your-face in uh, rudeness in some cases. Uh, but the very different directions that the artists in that show took uh, all seemed plausibly to be part of a response to uh, a certain take on the world. Uh, I should also take the, say that uh, most of them were appalled by the show, and maybe we have a new generation coming up. Um, but, but I think Takanaga's work in relation to that is interesting. She's a more mature artist, I would say, yes, uh, than those people. Another connection that I made, I don't know if uh, many of you have seen the show at the uh, Folk Art American Museum. Folk Art Museum. Yeah, Fabulous show. Oh, no. Fabulous show. Yeah. Uh, in, in which uh, artists are... Some seem to be functioning artists, and some are just people who have learned to cope with their lives by uh, vocalizing syllables that they represent, one person yeah. represented by different signs and just making enormous sheets uh, of this over hours and hours and hours. And it, it compels one's respect uh, uh, somehow. That show is called an Obsessional Drawing. Obsessional Drawing. And uh, it, is a, it is a sensational fabulous show. fabulous show. Um, there, there's one person there in particular who uh, you should think about uh, Takanega's work in relation to. He, the chef. He's a Japanese, and I forget his he's name. He's a chef. Dao, I forget his name, but he does lots of little bubbles and obsessive little round things and squiggles. Um, but there is a, uh, I don't know how to put it, there's a, an explosion beyond the frame, a, a craziness, uh, a, a collapsing of scale between, uh, you don't know whether you're looking at astral, Huge astral pictures, or through a tiny little microscope, which is true, that, which is true of well, Takanega well. too. Yeah. But but it all seems uh, uh, more 
mad. One thing I liked about her work, though, yes. was that, that she's, not, she's not imprisoned by symmetry, and she doesn't repeat herself, which you, you miss it, uh, in the reproductions. You see that she's actually thought at, at every single circle she's painted a little differently, and she's mm. thought about how she wants it to be, and then there's no... She's not allowing a pattern or a symmetry to take her through the work entirely. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, would, I would have thought there's a great deal of um, art in the 20th century that's aware of and feeds off and has a knowing relationship to outsider art or psychotic art, but that if, it, if, it's, if it's engaging us in a fine art context, it's doing so because of um, as much of a, a degree of um, uh, resolution and competence and... Uh, control as, as, as any other genre. One interesting thing about the obsessional drawing show is that not, the, the artists differ, but, but uh, several of them are aware of the art world. They're not, you know, goofballs out there in the, the world British, somewhere. The they're, they're aware, but they're, they're not part of the art world, you know, and they are, they're sort of, they have a kind of inside-outside mm -hmm. tension. Uh, and I think well, many of us who went to, you know, got the MFA feel this way. <laughs> Good deal of the time. But uh, perhaps, perhaps this new generation of artists, or this, this, this rather this tendency in artists, can open the door to. A, um, I mean, the, the fact that there's this, there's this, uh, as there was once a high-low exchange, and still is, of course, within uh, fine art and the rest of the world. There's, a, there's a sort of sane, insane dialogue as well now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious what, what you finally take away. From, I mean, there are, of course, many obsessive uh, artists of, of her kind historically. Um, what do you finally? After you go, wow, how did she do that? I know, and, and you do, you do your, it's sort of, the experience is a bit like trompe l'oeil, I think, you, where you'll see a trompe l'oeil painting and you'll go, oh, how astonishing, how did he do it? Um, and then, you, then what? Then often... Mm, well, I think no, one, uh, no. one, one distinction between the, the kinds of obsessive <coughs> artists that are in the Folk Art Museum uh, and somebody like Takanaga is they are, in many cases... Uh, not envisioning an audience at all, it's simply an activity mm -hmm. that utterly engages them, uh, and they go on doing it uh, indefinitely. Henry Darger is, mm -hmm. is a, a, yes. a great example of this. Um, whereas she is clearly making something to be seen by an audience that also sees James Sienna and yeah. a, a great deal of other material. And so furthermore, she's making something that's, 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 that's very aware of perceptual psychology, so it couldn't, sure. be, couldn't be sure. literally more aware of the viewer. Right. But it's often a and thin she line. As a it's often a thin line. I mean, any of us who spend most of our time in the studio have some mm. degree of obsession uh, keeping us yes. there. Well, one thing I did think was interesting. I mean, I, I also it also made me think of Kusama, but. Yes. Yeah, um, the difference is that this, you know, I mean, they, they, these all go towards a center. There's this central composition, whereas in Kusama's work, it, it's, it's different. And so it's kind of a different, you know, sort of relationship of you to it in a way. I mean, Kusama's work is almost like a kind of being overwhelmed by this thing, you know, whereas in this, there is this sort of clear center. So there's a clear kind of Centrifugal, order. Yeah, yes. which, which I, I thought was, was interesting. Um, you know, and, and also it was interesting to see that show, and then I, I went to see the David Solly show, which, mm -hmm. you know, was pretty horrible, Vortexes, but, yeah. but, yeah. but, but more um, vortices, Vortex. yeah. yeah. I, I, I have seen uh, Takanaka's work before, Takanaka's work before, and I'm not certain I'm remembering it correctly, but it seemed to me that in this show, uh, there's a, a, a degree of three-dimensionality mm -hmm. to the space right. and yeah. to the volumetric individual, character individual of, the, 
of the modular forms, mm -hmm. which are highlighted and they're like necklaces and mm -hmm. pearls. Or, in fact, uh, Tomaselli would obviously right, be yes, another yeah, a right. point That's of reference. Right. Uh, but I wondered about her, in a sense, reifying these patterns as things in a plausible space, and I thought, isn't that in a way parallel to what Al Held did? Al Held, brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, we're suddenly, the, uh, of course, a completely different nature of yeah. form, and also pretty obsessional. We'd pretty have to obsessional, say. and, I, and we're, uh, we're we're picking up on her obsessional, and 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 therefore, in a way, almost designating her to the folk art museum. But is she necessarily any more obsessional than Chuck Close? Hmm. I mean, no. um, there, there's, no. there is a you know there was a uh, an orthodoxy that set in with American abstract painting in the nineteen. 40s and 50s, that we were all, that the one was aiming towards this, the single gesture, the, the, the uh, a certain degree of, uh, an, an art that encapsulated speed and energy. And we're, we're, we're witnessing a reversal again, a reversal and a, a sort of resurgence of a kind of activity that's um, kind of a, a sort of nutty craft that, that, that fine art can embrace and, and entail, a kind of nutty craft, and, and then engender a different kind of speed of response. Um, from the viewer. I, th I feel that Takenega is part of a, a bigger picture there. I think we should know, take up um, Mark's challenge. Is it, is it just one of those kind of craft things where you see, oh, you get it, and then you don't know what to do with it? Or are these uh, images that have some resonance um, as images or as experiences uh, that, that go beyond... Um, For example, I don't know how, st how straight she's taking the... I think it's straight... That those little beams of light right in the center. I mean, is mm -hmm. this supposed to be an, a visionary, right. ecstatic right. art? Right, right, right. Or is, is that a kind of ironic? Yes, or, yeah. is it, or is it just because it makes an interesting image? Mm -hmm. Well, she the fact that, that some do that and some don't suggests that she has a range of attitudes about it. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. that, that may be ironic or maybe uh, tantric, on the other mm -hmm. hand. You know, it in, it in may be that she's kind of devised a language for herself yeah. which can give shaped to a, a range of experiences and, and emotions. Yeah, you know, actually, I, it's true. I don't really feel that behind it there is this, you know, this, this sort of profound, you know, kind of world view in a way that you sometimes find even with, with you know, some of the outsider artists or the, the, this kind of sense of that it's, it's you know, it, it's, it, it, it does, some of it seems to be that it's just for fun. You know, when, when I, one gets a feeling that, it, I mean, it, it's, it's very, you know, it, it's fun to look at it. it. I don't know if it's fun to do, but, but yeah, that, that it's not real. Even, and even with the light, I mean, you're right, the light could be the sort of cosmic, divine sort of thing, but I don't feel like it is. I mean, I feel like it's, it's there because, you know, it's, it's fun, basically. And I don't feel that, I mean, Tomaselli is somebody I mentioned her in yeah. relation to. I mean, classic, vintage Tomaselli right. is so funny and clever yeah. and at the same time beautiful. But I, I feel that he's really become a prisoner to his technique in, in the very uh, fussy recent work. Whereas with Takanega, I feel, not that I'm that knowledgeable about, about her earlier work, but it seems to have a great energy and strength mm -hmm. and, and sort of without me being able to verbalize exactly what its intentional path mm -hmm. is, it has that sense of uh, a purpose. Mm. Well, good. Let's, let's hear now from the audience on the last two shows that we looked at, Duncan Hannah and... and Barbara Takanega, did, did my co-panelists miss something that you shared with me and Duncan Hannah, or uh, conversely, are we over, where, where are, we, are we getting it right with Barbara Takanega, and are there some links between the two? Uh, Irving again? You talk about a spiritual art, whatever that means, uh, put Sally Haslett into this equation and what happens. Did you all see her? Sally Haslett? 
Sally Haskins. No, I didn't see that. No. At the uh, Alexander, Phil Alexander. Yeah. Mm. Oh, right. Yes, I mean you could also talk about Pousset Dart. You know, art that that that, that is moving toward uh, uh, either inducing a state of consciousness or being receptive to a certain kind of uh, gaze and meditation on the part of the viewer. Uh, moving this back a little bit into the 1950s as well, because there was that stream in American art as well. Mm -hmm. The art is a very good comparison, I think. Very good, yeah, I just saw that this afternoon. You know, I mean, actually, this question of is it serious, how serious do we take it, that's kind of, you know, it, I mean, it also resembles op art, and, you know, those were the questions that plagued yeah. op art also. I mean, was there anything more to it than just this kind of visual play? In fact, she was featured in an exhibition at her own gallery, Mackenzie, that uh, revisited op art and included uh, 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 the one artist who was in the MoMA show. Uh, Ernest uh, Sorry? Yes. No. Uh, sorry. Uh, Aniskevich? Yes. Yes. No, it was just Aniskevich. And then contemporary artists, including Pearson in that sort of trippy vein. Mm. Um, yeah. What, what with, I mean, with Pearson, since you bring him up, yes. uh, there's a, a densely layered mm -hmm. set of configurations, conceptual and, and, yes. and visual and, and physical. I mean, he's found a way to... It's a kind of implosive force. You feel mm. there are so yes. many layers and things that have gone into making those those paintings that they absolutely command a, a, a degree of attention mm. that much agree, work yes. does, does not, uh, and they are always on the edge of uh, legibility. The, mm. the 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 language parts that, uh, are on the other side of legibility much of the time, but uh, even on other levels, one is always uh, deciphering. I mean, there there are elements of a kind of hallucinogenic. Uh, reference. There are elements that we might relate to op art. There are elements that I mean, we can come at it in many ways, and it's very clear he's consciously playing with all mm -hmm. of these uh, different different vectors, aesthetic vectors, and and uh, psychological and optical sure. vectors as well. Well, you I, you've said more in one <coughs> sentence than the entire panel was able to say on Bruce Pearson uh, two panels ago. But so so thank you for doing that and helping us mm -hmm. with the record on Pearson. Um, Yes, uh, any other voices? Uh, no. Uh, lady in the front. My questions. I feel apologetic because I always feel my questions are going to display my ignorance to the vast world, but I can't help asking, I can't help wondering this question. You talked about ennui and boredom of the new, younger artists, and I just wonder if that comes from the fact that new art, that the art now is always looking for something new, something new. When you contrast it to the past where they tried to do what the great artists did over and, you know, do exactly what the great did, and you have, I mean, is newness the answer? Is, is doing something new the answer to art? Who tried to do what the great masters did? I, I don't understand. Are you saying what they used to try yeah, to do well, the same aside thing? Aside from the, uh, the Byzantine things, uh, well, Rembrandt's school, where they tried to paint, paint like Rembrandt. You know, it, it, the better you did something, 
uh, that, that artists in those days, the better you were considered. You know, it's I, just I, the opposite. Let me, let me defend you boredom break. and ennui for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> let me defend boredom and ennui for a moment. They are very, very important techniques, actually, especially among the young. They're a way to erase the past, to, to express boredom with earlier achievement. They're an affectation, usually. And if you're a good artist, you usually get less and less ennui-ish as you get older. But, uh, but among the young, who are young and vigorous and healthy, it's an extraordinary thing to become uh, exhausted, bored, ennui. But it's also useful. It's a, and it's a typical modern device. It's a way that you move along when you're in your 20s. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's, the, it's the painterly equivalent of, quote, whatever. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, and it's... It's a, some people actually make art of it, of course, you know, and, and, and really make that their entire sensibility. There are writers like that, too. Uh, and I, it's usually a mistake to do that. Uh, however, it's, a, it's an essential tool. <laughs> but the lady also seems to have some trouble with uh, art since Giotto, um, in, the, in that, uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, there, was, uh, there was something to say for, the, for Byzantium. But on the other hand, you know... Um, the thing about Byzantium is the thing for me about Attack and Eger. It's remarkable once you overcome that prejudice of seeming sameness, how there is a, an amazing diversity. I did think it was hard to look at many of them uh, mm. in one show. I mean, I guess that's true for many artists, mm. but maybe particularly for this kind of artist. The, the density of the, I mean, the, the well, Christmas it's a pretty quality. Uh, it's a pretty consistent and rich diet, but I actually found that there was, once you got into the language, um, and dealt with variety, it, dealt yeah. with it abstractly, yeah, yeah. rather than yeah. once you got used to the concept, once you got used to the language, the beads, as it were. It seemed to me that um, there were different degrees of cosmicness, there were different degrees of flatness and depth, there were different humours, and uh, that seemed to be an achievement. Gentlemen here, to do wait for the mic, if you would. I have to say, I feel kind of intimidated, and it's taken me like fifteen minutes to be able to come out and say what I'm feeling about this. And I'm an artist too. I've uh, been away from New York for a long time and I feel I'm just starting to get to know the scene here, which to me is good or bad, I don't know. But I find that, um, that you're spending so much time speculating about what these people are feeling and thinking and doing, where their art's coming from, and I don't even know if they know where it's coming from, their, their own art. And that, to me, is a real problem. If the artist can't be in touch with the deepest part of their own unconscious mind, the creative process, if they can't verbalize what they're, what, why they're doing what they're doing, then you guys are taking doing it for them. And I'm not sure how accurate that really is. Uh, I, 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 I think we're just talking about what we're getting. I think we're end users. I think we were rather restrained and uh, speculating into intentionality, but maybe we overstepped the mark. Well, I, you know, actually, I would say that, that when, when an artist's intentions are too clear, you get Hans Hacke, and exactly. that's a problem. So, you know, yes, we, ha we have to speculate, and it's, it is what we do as critics. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing that the artist isn't wearing the. What I'm saying is the artist. Walk and doesn't really understand themselves mm -hmm. where they're on art from. Yeah. Otherwise, why are they yeah. making art? But you see, this is well, what critics do. I don't know about that. Well, what about right. what about what about uh, the experience of looking at the Van Gogh drawings, where if you are lucky to get there when it's not too terribly crowded, and you and you really allow yourself considerable time with any given drawing, 
for me, there's this incredible sense that the communication through time and space is, is palpable. I mean, I can, I, I don't know, it's not a matter of interpretation, but I can feel the metabolism, the energy, the specific content, uh, the, the working of a relationship to the landscape that he's looking at or whatever he's drawing, and it feels absolutely immediate. I find, and that's one of the miracles. To me, he's one of the few that really feel, feel into him feel into his feelings, what, his, what he was feeling. It's one of the things like. we value in those drawings. I think, on the other hand, many of the paintings, you feel him... Um, I, I felt this particularly after you know, marveling at those drawings uh, and going through the, the, the permanent collection and the, and the paintings in the show and thinking, I see what he wanted to do and he didn't make it every time by any means. This, is, this deliberate attempt at the translation you know, into color of those of those marks. When it works, it's sensational, but very often it, you, you feel the but, effort. But wasn't it Van Gogh who said, I, I wouldn't have wanted to miss that era? <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting because Bob, of, of us, is the one who is also a painter. And I think that, you know, probably painters, there, there is a different way that painters look at paintings. You, you, you think about it, and you, you have your critic hat, but you also have your painter hat, and you, you have a way of thinking about it that, certainly is not available to me as the kinds of artistic decisions that get made. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different way, I yeah, think. This is true. Well, one way, one way I talk about it, uh, and this is not a critical uh, view, I think, is that su such a drawing, as, as we're talking about, is uh, equivalent in a way to a musical score. And when you look at it, if you play it, you're, and one way to play it is to do a study of it, and we Artists don't do that as much nowadays, but you you know make a patient study and you find out things about what you're seeing that you'd have no other way of knowing. You discover it in the course of the half an hour or whatever time you're spending doing that. Uh, but you do that mentally as well, and doing that mentally means, in a way, reliving the experience uh, of making that. And I think a great deal of art of the modern period, certainly with Cezanne and, and or many others, uh, one has offered that that possibility of seeing the mind and the perception at work and the argument with the self, and I often feel like I'm right there while the work is being made. Right, because of the deconstructive nature of the language, to yeah. some extent, yes. Okay, any new comments from, from new voices, or, or shall, we, um, shall we say thank you very much to our audience and to our hosts and to our panel? Thank you.